Thanks for, Thanks for listening to the, the Boots Fast Podcast. Hey everybody, the time has come. The Boots Off Podcast is on its way back into our downloads. I'm finally at a place where I can afford the time and the focus to get back to booking and enjoying compelling conversations with military veterans about their experiences in the military, their journey to the civilian world, and what they're doing now or what their plans are for the future. Before I relaunch into a uh, second season, if you will, of the show, I want to offer listeners a recap, because it's been a couple years. So this is a sort of best of season one, in my opinion. And I've gone through nearly 10 hours of the available episodes and selected portions from each of them that I found to be the most insightful. Everyone has something to offer, and if you hear something in this Season 1 recap that sparks your interest, I encourage you to find the full episode to hear more of what that person has to say. And as we pick this podcast back up, I ask that if you would like to be a guest on the podcast to share your own experiences and advice, email me at mike at l-a-h-r dot media, or fill out the contact form on www.lar.media. Again, that's lar, l-a-h-r dot media. This next season, I have a stand-up comedian. I'll talk to a therapist about the very important subject of suicide, a Marine who decided to trade in his buzz cut for the Air Force life, and many more fellow veterans with good stories and helpful hearts. For now, let's revisit what happened last time we were together through nine episodes, starting with episode one, Kellen Carr. Our recruiter actually called me, uh, he, let me say, called me a unicorn. He was just like, here you are, he said, for our demographic, he was like, you know, Southwest Missouri is 90% you know, white. Um, it's, you know, like, I don't even know what the percentages are in terms of people having college degrees, but it's not the most educated area, you know? But he was like, you are a black male with a college degree coming to the Air Force. He's like, that's, coming enlisted. He was like, that's rare. Like, we just don't have that, you know? And uh, the biggest thing for me to go in enlisted, the biggest incentive um, was broadcasting. That's what my, my degree was in broadcast journalism in college. So I was actually going to get to go in, guaranteed job, and go into a, a career field that I had experience in, a, a career field that I actually wanted. So I thought at the very minimum, at least when I get out, I, can, I will have had four years of broadcasting under my belt as opposed to the three years before that I was a college degree, a graduate, but I wasn't using my degree. So uh, I joined. Uh, we had the tornado in 2011. I left three weeks later uh, for basic training. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was it was honestly, it was, it was a tough decision in that even in basic, my, my uh, TI, he made a comment to me. He's like, what are you doing? He's like, your, your recruiter screwed you over, man. You have a college degree. You shouldn't be here right now. Like, you – you should be and you should be going to OTS. You need to be an officer. Uh, and at the time, like when you hear stuff like that, you know, you start having some things, you like some feelings. And even once I joined, I had, you know, supervisors and people that were over me that were younger than me, you know. And obviously, they joined sooner than I did, so that was one thing. But it was like they hadn't gone to college. They hadn't. So there were some things. There were some personal battles that I had with myself 
because you're looking at it like, oh, I'm older than you and more educated than you. How, how can you be over me? You know, but it was humbling, you know, and it was honestly one of the best things for me. Um, not that not that I necessarily I needed it per se, but to some degree I did, you know, to some degree. I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about other people uh, with that experience alone. Like I thought before that you would never be able to tell me there's somebody that's four years younger than me that I'm going to learn something from. Him. I'm like, you're the same age as my brother, you know? You're not, I'm not going to learn anything from you, but I did. I had some people that were younger than me, and I learned a lot from them. And I, I realized, like, that that mentality that I was going into it with, uh, that's flawed, you know? If you think that way, if you, you, there's always something to learn from, from everyone. I had a unique position in that here I was in, in E3, E4, you know, doing interviews with generals, you know? one, two, three-star generals, you know, and regularly, you know what I'm saying? And, and, uh, and weekly, yeah. Weekly, right? Yeah. So it, it got to a point where it was like, you know, most people, you know, you, you, you're talking to a three-star general, you know, you're like kind of clamming up, you know, and, and that's the thing civilians will never understand about the, the military environment. Like that is a added pressure, just seeing some stars and bars on somebody's sleeve, you know, and all of a sudden you're like, you perk up, you know, and, and you get this a little anxiety even. But, um, you know, I was doing it so frequently that I got really lax, you know, like to the point where I had these relationships with these individuals and, and I could talk to them in a different, in a way that most A1Cs and senior airmen couldn't. That in itself was, it was quite an experience. Uh, obviously, Afghanistan was another experience, you know, being an airman, um, and going in, I was, you know, in an army unit, uh, you know, we're individual augmentees. So it's not like, you know, army or Marines or something that we go there with a bunch of people that we know we go there and we're just putting a unit and we don't know anybody. We're meeting a bunch of new people. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, being in an, an army environment, you know, and when you go out on uh, convoys to shoot stories and stuff and, and I, a lot of the army guys, they'd be like, you got voluntold to do this, didn't you? I'm like, no, actually, I volunteered for this one because the way we did it, my supervisor at the time when I was in Afghanistan, he'd tell us, hey, you know, PA over here is calling us, PA over here is calling us, like, you know, where do you guys want to go? You know, he was very cool about that in terms of, you know, he didn't just, he wasn't just going to be like, hey, this story's here in a bad area, you go. You know what I'm saying? He didn't want to do you like that. He wanted people to kind of volunteer for their, you know, their areas and their tasks. And, uh, and that was cool. I appreciated that. And he was also good about letting us seek them out ourselves. Um, but yeah, there was a lot that, you know, there was one that I did up in Kunduz province. It was the Northern territory. It was the last Taliban stronghold. And it was one I, I was like, okay, this could be interesting because they had some, some action more recently, you know, and not that I was going there like gung ho, like, Oh, I want to be in the middle of something, but it was more of a, like, you know what, if I'm here, I might as well get this experience, you know, whatever that is, you know, um, and every day is different. It's not, no two days are the same there. So, uh, but I went there and, uh, went, stayed on a cop, cop kill a guy far North. And it was, uh, it was interesting, man. I mean, just live with amongst the army dudes. And it, it was cool because I definitely got their respect for doing that, you know, out there for a week. Um, but it was also just for my own for myself like it just it opened me up to so many things and it changed my perspective in that these little things that i tend to stress about here they are these guys are out here living out here this is they do this every day they're not doing it for a week joining the air force was the best decision i made 
I mean, literally, it, it for so many different reasons, you know, uh, it, it was a great decision. And, and that what I tell people, you know, getting out was the second best decision I made. Because I got out in like my four years, I, I love it. Like, I don't have this, don't get me wrong, there was bad moments in there. It's like with any job or anything. You know, you're going to have bad moments. Uh, there's some bad times in there. But overall, when I look back at that experience, man, I, like my mind is blown. I did things that I never would have imagined doing. I saw places that I never would have imagined seeing. I worked with some people that I'll be friends with. I mean, like right now, like I'll be in contact with for the rest of my life. I made friends and connections that I have the rest of my life. I made bonds that are even stronger than bonds that I have with people that I've known my entire life, you know. And I made them in a short period of time, you know. And so it's 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 amazing how that works. So if you're if if a person who's on the fence, I tell them do it because you won't regret it, you know. Uh, if you do regret it, people that do regret it are typically people. It's either the people around them they just got bad luck and they just were surrounded by not very good people, or you got to take a look inside at yourself and be like, wow. Maybe my personality, maybe there's something that I need to change about myself because I'm creating this negative experience. You know, that's the only people who are going to have truly bad experiences like the whole time. Uh, you know, unless you just get like, you know, Canon or something. I don't know how the middle of New Mexico. But uh, <laughs> uh, overall, though, I, I, uh, the person that, that's thinking about it, I, like I said, I just, my biggest regret, honestly, was not joining sooner. I wish I wouldn't have waited till I was 26, you know. Had I not waited till I was 26, maybe I'd have stayed in longer, maybe not, you know. But uh, I wish I, I wish I would have joined sooner. Um, and then the person who's who's thinking about getting out, you know, don't don't stay in just because you know you can stay in and for 20 years and then you can you know retire. That's not a good enough incentive to stay in. If you're at the eight-year mark. You have 12 years left before you get out, right? Even if you're at the 10-year mark and 10 years left before you can get out, some people are like, well, but I'll be 38 and I can retire. Yeah, that's fine and dandy, but who really stops working at 38? You know what I'm saying? Everybody, go. you go work somewhere. Now, it's nice to have that retirement on top of working somewhere else, but at the same time, it's like if you're going to spend 10 years of your life, if you're, actually, if, you're, if you're thinking about getting out because you're miserable or you don't like your job or you don't you know, like your unit or whatever the case may be, if you're thinking about getting out, really think it over long and hard. But understand too, man, time is the most precious gift that we have. Our life, our time is the most precious gift we have. So if you're going to spend the next however many years, I don't care if it's even three years, if you go 17 years and you're miserable and you got to think three more years until I can retire, for me personally, my time is precious. So I don't care how much, how long it is. I'm just going to, I'm going to get out. I'm going to walk away. I'm going to do something different because I don't want to have this regret of I spent this many years stressed out or hating this or not liking this or unhappy. And I wasted that many years of my life, you know? So, uh, yeah, if, if you're on the fence about that, it's kind of the same thing. You know, it's like, it's, here's the fence, man. Just, you got to jump off the fence, pick a side and just roll with it. Don't turn around. Don't look back. Just go. I honestly, man, I, I like to look at, life like all of us we're all authors right we're all writing a story right now every one of us we're all writing a story this is our book our book is called life you know and you got to write often and you got to edit well and and that's the thing 
you choose how it's going to end. You know how it's going to end up. We we pick the outcome. You know there are some things that are beyond our control. There are going to be things in there that are beyond our control. But for the most part, we choose the outcome, and whether it's a happy story or whether it's a sad or a bad story. And I think that's part of it. And don't don't waste your time. You know there there are times where the military is it can great for you it, and it can be a, a phenomenal tool and a nice stepping stone and then like you said there's other people who they just fall in line and they can do 20 years and coast on the way out but you have to figure out you know even not i'm not gonna say early on but you need to you need to you know constantly be thinking about can i handle this can i handle this lifestyle you know if the things change if i get married if i have kids you know will i have a good relationship will it you know create a conducive environment that I want to live in, that I want to create. You have to think about those things. Now, the thing for me, I don't have any kids. I'm not married. But I did realize the longer I'm in active duty, the harder it's going to be for me to do those things. From Kellen, we head out to sea aboard a famous carrier with Christian Garzon from Episode 2. He knew you from a PBS documentary, like a docu-series called Carrier. Yeah. And... So then I had to go and watch this, and you said that it actually does have quite a following, Carrier. Yeah, it really does. It's a, kind of a global following. It still airs and repeats, and you can stream it. Uh, we were just talking about that before the phone call, kind of streaming. You can look at it online, and it can just kind of – you don't have to buy the DVD. You can just watch it on the Internet, the World Wide Web. Uh, but, yeah, over the years, when it first hit, obviously, there's a huge following. I mean, Mel Gibson produced this uh, show of force, huge company put it together um so it, in 2008 when it first hit the tv airwaves it really had a big following people use that i think a lot of the times uh when they have they're curious about the navy or curious about the military what life is really going to be like because it is so realistic and it is so true to what navy life is really like good and bad uh and in between so yeah you know when 9-11 happened that that was something that really touched a lot of people and people reacted to it in different ways but um, for me, it, you know, it was something that, that really, really uh, hit me deep down. And I thought, well, you know, I'm young enough. I, I got to put up or shut up. I can't be. I just think that that was a time where I said, you know, I, I have to do something for this country. I can't just sit on my hands and talk about the war in Afghanistan. And, yeah, let's let's go get the uh, let's go get Al Qaeda, stuff like that. Let's get the Taliban. Let's get them. Go, go, go. And just be sitting here, a young American male who's 22 years old. I would look back on myself 20 years later and probably think, man, why didn't I do something? Um, I think I think with that post 9-11 GI Bill, my transition to civilian life was eased a little bit. because I, I didn't have to worry so much about, um, you know, I'm just like maybe if you watch a movie like Rambo or something. John Rambo's just wandering the streets like we don't like drifters in this town, man. And he, he doesn't know where he's going or what he's doing. It wasn't like that. I felt like I had a purpose. Like, I can, hey, I can go to school and kind of settle into things. I can find a part-time job and just kind of ease my way back into society. I know that sounds like a Rambo thing to say, but it wasn't like Rambo, you, you know. <laughs> and what kind of advice would you tell anybody who is considering enlisting or if they're faced with a an impending separation? Well, if they're going to if they're gonna enlist, I, I you know, um, first of all, I say, do it because I think it's a great experience for any young man or woman to do. Um, I, I think it, it builds tremendous character. 
Um, and you're going to have life experiences that you're just not going to get anywhere else. And I, I, again, you go through some really rough patches. I mean, it's a lot of hard work. The military is not just some, you know, thing you sign up for and it's just, uh, Hey, here's a big GI bill. And now it's, it's, it's a lot of work, you know? Um, so I say, if you want to think about enlisting, make sure you can make sure you're physically qualified, then do it. Absolutely. Um, even if you get into a job field that might be, I don't want to say undesignated, but something that's less desirable or whatever, you can, you can get your way out of that. You're proof of that. I'm proof of that. Mike Brogan is proof of that. Um, you can still do a passion because, because uh, really the military, there are equivalents. Every raider job in the military really is in the outside world for the most part, I think. There's mailmen and uh, everything else. You know, for the mo- There's librarians, I think, too. I, well, maybe not librarians, but at least bookkeepers, stuff like I'm giving me. Well, we, uh, we had librarians on the GS side. Well, there you go. Yeah. But there's some kind of equivalent. So if you have a dream of being whatever, you can probably sign up with the military, get that job and have some awesome resume bullets uh, going forward in life. And maybe maybe you want to stay in for 20 years and uh, do your thing because the military is just a wonderful experience. There'll be days, obviously, you're going to be there folding your arms thinking this sucks. I'm so mad. But um, you're going to get through that's it. That's going to be any, any job that you have. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely. You're gonna have those days. Absolutely. That you're going to have those days. Uh, in the military, I think, uh, again, a lot of hard work, but uh, it's so rewarding. The life experiences you're going to have, the friends you're going to make, the community you're going to have afterwards when you get out, you can't replace that. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Episode three held a lot of fun conversation uh, to me, but in terms of what you need to know, Dom Panagaling has this golden nugget of advice. Almost like what they say, like it's like the best set kept secret that they can preserve is Loadmaster because you get to fly on your own time. So you get to pick your schedule. Like active duty, you flew when they told you to fly. Like that, your name's on the board. Oh, yeah. You don't decide, oh, you know what, can I fly on like Friday? And you don't get, you just like you're there. It has to be something like some circumstance like, oh, I, I got Deniff or something that can change everything. But other than that, active duty was pretty grueling as a flyer. But reservists, they they cater to your schedule. Like if you can't fly on a certain time, it has to be like something crazy. But they never get to the point where they pressure people. It's, it's a very big, it's a very like independent program. People take care of their own stuff. If you want to fly, you let them know when you give them your schedule. Joshua DeFore is a Marine turned filmmaker, and you need to check out his award-winning short film, The 11th Order, Six Seconds to Live, which we discussed in episode four. There really wasn't an alternative to go to film school. There, there, you know, you, what, take out more student loans and try to transfer in? That doesn't work. It's a very specialized um, college at most universities. And uh, that, that, so, but at the time, when he had talked to me about joining, he had mentioned that full metal jacket idea of being a combat correspondent. And I said, you're just lying to me to get me to join. I don't believe you, man. Um, but then two years later, it, it is a job, you know. And the more I looked into it, I was lucky to have at my recruiting office a public affairs marine, which is very rare to find in the recruiting field. And he told me, when you get in, First of all, make sure you sign the contract as a public affairs Marine. And when you get in and you go to your school, which is the Defense Information School, um, you want to be the best so you can test into broadcasting. That way you can work on video and that way you'll be able to go and do film. And that was always my goal. Um, obviously, it, it adds four months onto your school. So I was, you know, in school for like a year and a month. Um, but... <laughs> 
through that process, I was able to become a broadcaster. So my goal was always to to get to Denfos, as they call it, and work my ass off so that I could get that opportunity to uh, shoot shoot video. I think I disappointed a lot of people by not doing anything military related, and I had done that on purpose that I want to be pigeonholed. Um, but I had a feeling for my last film, I was like, you know what? Not just for their sake, but for mine, I I need to do it therapeutically, um, just to kind of harken, like to go back to my military career and use this 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 kind of these those experiences, which are very unique to film students. And I didn't have the right story, though. I just I was like, I don't know what to to tell. I don't know what to really use. I had no idea. I know I kind of maybe wanted to make military films. Was on the fence about it. And one day, my roommate, who's a former Marine as well, former combat photographer, sent me this speech that John Kelly made in 2010 about Lance Corporal Harder and Corporal Yale. And you're reading the speech. It's incredibly moving. And it's the story of these two gentlemen that didn't know each other. You know, one is about to leave the post in a couple days. So he had been there for seven months. And then the other Marine was just arriving to switch over. So they're put on this gate duty, having only met 10 minutes before, and then this truck comes barreling down the serpentine, and they have six seconds to make a decision, and they, with no hesitation, fire at this truck in those six seconds and stop stop it at the gate. They shoot the driver and stop it at the gate. The truck explodes. It kills them, but they saved 150 lives. So reading about that was just incredible, and it sounds like a short film just in that. Um you know, given the timeline and how much time was really spent in that event. Um, and it, 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 it was just an incredibly moving story about two, I wouldn't say ordinary Marines, but they were, they were, they were doing exactly what they were supposed to do. And yet it makes you think, well, what would I have done in that situation? Because the, the, uh, there were Iraqi officers that ran for cover and they survived. And those two just, just stood there. And, you know, did exactly what they were supposed to do. But even in doing so, I mean, that's such a big deal to make a sacrifice like that, um, knowing that more than likely you're not going to live. And um, I, I just incredibly moved by it. And then the fact that it's I didn't know this, unfortunately, but it, it's a really infamous story within the Marines. And it's even part of the crucible now um, that you have to learn about them. Um, which is kind of amazing. So they're forever enshrined in marine lore. And it just, once I read that speech, I was like, I felt that it would be shameful to not make it because I knew I could. And no one had made a film about this story, which surprised me. And I, after putting the speech down, if I had walked away from that story, I would have felt not good about it because I would be not only limiting myself, but turning my back on something that should be made. And that's kind of how that came about. A lot of people that I've spoken to, a lot of vets, come out of service and compartmentalize that experience and are completely, there's two ways to go about it. They either compartmentalize it and are like, I'm a civilian now. I'm not going to talk about that. That isn't part of my life anymore. Moving on. Or they do the opposite and they hold on to these memories and can't get over them. Um, whether they be positive or negative, they miss the military and and can't readjust to civilian life. Both are understandable. Um, I was part of the compartmentalized group, and over the course of the last two years, 
Um, you know, I had, I had seen some things in Afghanistan that I'd put deep below. And the more stress I put on at school, all of a sudden, things started coming out that were dormant, apparently. And I kind of made myself sick and mentally and had a nervous breakdown um, as recently as March. And finally, was, was like, okay, enough's enough. I need to go to the VA. I need to get in that process of going to therapy, seeing a psychiatrist, talking about these things, um, being healthy, and trying to not only readjust as a civilian, but taking care of those military, you know, not make it compartmentalized, bringing the back up and taking care of that. So I think my biggest advice is when you get out, take care of yourself and, you know, make sure that you, that you are adjusting, but also that you're doing it slowly and taking it one step at a time, because if you take too much of a load, you're going to feel incredibly, you know, over overloaded with that stuff. Um, and then off of that, don't settle. Um, people respect military vets and you'd be surprised what you can, what you can accomplish because yeah, maybe, maybe you have a decent bachelor's degree or maybe you don't, but you're going to compete with the higher level people because they're always going to pick a military veteran for the leadership because you're responsible because they can count on you. Most of these big businesses. So, you know, if you want a salary job that pays a decent amount, get a degree for it, obviously, but you're going to have a leg up and you need to take advantage of that. The information that Will and Allison are about to give you is extremely valuable. If it's not for you, it could be for someone you know. So please keep an open mind and feel free to share this with others. Just like yoga and meditation, Reiki is clinically proven to work, and not at all in the way that fake doctors claim on infomercials about whatever products they're trying to sell. This is free, 100%. It's been researched and is shown to help heal physical injuries, as well as depression and PTSD. In fact, Reiki for Vets has already partnered with VA clinics in South Carolina, and they're growing to work with others around the country. So keep an eye out for this practice. They may be coming to your area someday, and for no cost at all, just like this podcast. I'll let them tell you the rest. Enjoy. I started out, let's see, I had a, an Air Force veteran, I had a Navy veteran, a Marine veteran, and now I'm knocking out the Army and the Coast Guard. There you go. Perfect. Got them all All done. in five episodes. That's How cool <laughs> is that? I'm sure there are plenty of differences we can't even get into them between the Coast Guard life and Army life. What would you say? I'll tell you what it is. The, the Coast Guard is the country club of the military. <laughs> because when he tells me his basic training stories versus my basic training stories... There's no comparison. He had it cushy. I mean, they had it made. Really. I, I will agree. It is. It is. It is. It is a bit easier life. Um, you know, if 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 anybody anybody that asks me, you know, what, what's the Coast Guard life like, and I honestly tell them that it's you know, if you if you go down to your local fire station, uh, that's what most of the the duties like. You're on if you're at if you're on shore. You know, if you're if you've got shore duty, you're there for a couple of days and then you're off for a couple of days. So it's. It's actually a really nice, you know, really nice routine. Now, shipboard life, that's completely different. You know, when you're in port, you're working your butt off to get the ship underway. Once you're underway, you're working 24-7. You know, it's it's kind of a, well, I say 24-7. You're stand your four-hour watches or your, you know, four and fours or whatever you want, whatever you do. But it's, um, you know, you work hard and you play hard. So I would say um, that the Army is a little bit more like uh, how they, you know, how they joke about issuing your wife. 
in the in the army or whatever they issue your wife and if they didn't issue you one you wouldn't have one well it's more like they own you in that respect everything is about the army but in the coast guard it's a little bit more like a a real civilian type of job you have it's like a real it's more like a real job it's 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 like a more it's 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 it is it's it's like a real job plus it's like a family because we're so small so the number comparison uh, the number that always gets thrown out there that everybody kind of always thinks about there's actually more people on a New York uh, police department, uh, you know, actually, actually working on the New York Police Department than there are in the Coast Guard. Coast Guard's wow. typically around thirty-nine thousand to forty thousand strong active duty members. That's it, and that's worldwide. So, yeah, we're very small. We're a very small group of individuals. So it seems kind of like a like a little secret that all of those sailors don't know about. Right. Because mm-hmm. okay. you're going to be out on ships. Yeah. If you're if you're in the Navy, but. Coast Guard might be where it's at. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's and and in my career in 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 my field, I I had a very interesting career in my field. My field typically spends a lot of time underway uh, as a as a machinery technician. Really, the bulk of it should be underway on a ship. Um, I happen to ninety percent of my career, ninety nine percent of my career has been actually at shore. Um, I spent one tour, one tour on a large boat, one tour on a small boat. Uh, a smaller cutter, um, and then the rest of it has been at at, at shore. So, um, because I also split my service, I spent ten years of active duty, and at the ten year mark, um, I decided I we were going to start a family with our children, and I didn't want to be deployed on a ship and have that whole mess because I've seen that all unravel from other, you know, Coast Guard friends of mine. I decided I'm going to get into the reserves, and I spent a small a small amount of time in the reserves from '97 to 2001. And then at, in 2001, after 9/11, I was recalled back to active duty. So I'm I'm a disabled veteran and and have the you know disabled veteran rating and the whole bit, um, and really had a lot of severe lower back issues and determined that I've got some you know uh, bulging discs and pinched nerves and so forth. So the VA being the VA, they're going to go through the whole course of action of medications and shots and all these different things because you know frankly. They don't know what else to do. I mean, they said, well, I'm too young for surgery and I really don't want to do surgery on you because, you know, we um, just we just don't want to do that just yet at this point. And as as young as you are and healthy as you are, so I said, OK, that's fine. I'll just continue with the shots. Well, the shots weren't working. And finally, they said, hey, you want to try this pain management clinic? And I thought, sure. What's pain management clinic? Well, they set me up for the appointment. You go through an orientation, and I don't understand why there's an orientation, but there's an orientation, a couple-hour orientation, and they introduce you to meditation, uh, qigong, um, tai chi, uh, uh, um, acupuncture, and they introduce you to all these things as an alternative to what you're – or a complement to what you're currently getting from the VA. Can you just tackle the cat real quick? Sorry. You might have to edit that. Um, but um, so – I was going through that, and I also, at that point, was starting my undergrad and my, my – I was working my way through my undergrad program and uh, eventually into my master's program. And with the stress of that, that was increasing my back pain. Well, that was about the point that Allison started with working with the Reiki. And for myself, <clears throat> I've always been in touch with my spiritual side, I guess you could say. Even as a child, I knew uh, – I mean, in high school – our psychology teacher was great. He had us meditating in, in class, and you know, I've, oh, wow. yeah. So we had a lot. I had a lot of neat experiences as a as a teenager with that experience. 
but as an adult, I never really followed through with it. Well, as soon as Allison said, "Hey, I need a guinea pig to you know train on to while I'm working with the with the the Reiki," I said, "Sure, no problem." Well, I like she said, I started feeling different, had better clarity when I was studying. Uh, I could feel the the spiritual energy starting to kind of bubble up again, and you know acknowledging that. And I realized that I'm, I don't think I'm going to need to take the pain medicines that I'm taking because this is working differently. And eventually I, you know, through letting my doctor know that I'm not going to, I'm going to stop this pain medication. I'm going to stop the shots. This is actually working in its favor. And as a caveat, we're not advocating that no. anyone stop taking any kind of medication. No, not at all. And Reiki works as a complement, right. not just... An alternative to, and right. so you always want to talk to your physician about that. But it does complement right. regular medication, and it doesn't interfere with anybody who's receiving any kind of psychotherapy or any kind of medical intervention. Right. So when we when we approached our local VA here in Charleston, um, this was you know um, again I, I think this was you know divinely inspired because um, when we I was finishing up my master's and one of my professors, his wife works for the VA. And I said, hey, we want to provide some volunteer service. I didn't tell him exactly what we wanted to do. I just said, hey, I want to provide some volunteer services. Who do I need to talk to? He put me in touch with the director of volunteer services. We crafted this huge email, like, like almost like a business plan. Here's what it is. Here's what we can do. All this, you know, page, almost a full page of email information. And it wasn't but a couple hours later, he replied, and it was basically, yes, exclamation point, exclamation point, call me. We were stunned. So we called them, and we want to set you up to come down and talk to our physicians. I'll put a group together because, honestly, we've been looking for this for the last two years, and we didn't know who in the community to talk to. Wow. So there we are. You know, here the door the door's just been breached. We Now we're in, right? So we go down, and we, we, we sit with – there's probably six or eight physicians from the hospital, from the main hospital here in Charleston. And they've, they're all kind of brainstorming how it could be used. And one of the physicians says, I know exactly where this needs to be used. This needs to be used in our inpatient clinic on our, on our well, here in Charleston, it's on our third floor. So the inpatient unit is a, um, it's a psychiatric ward for, uh, uh, I guess. Short-term. Yeah, short-term psychiatric patients. Six to nine days for um, vets who are suicidal or uh, imbalanced or they need. Yeah, inpatient right. for a little while to stabilize. Yep, they either self self admit or they've been admitted by somebody, and they're for they're there for seven to nine days. So we we drafted up a protocol how we're going to work with these vets, and and uh, we scheduled up, and here's here's the days that we can come in and provide services for them. And um, so first day we go up there, and we, you know we we didn't know exactly what to expect. We had a little bit of idea, but think of a um, the way I the way I think about it. Is just a uh, a big open room with you know a lot of chairs that are just you know bolted to the floors. So and so even in in a less than ideal scenario, right? These vets that we worked with for only fifteen or twenty minutes, hands off, because yep. that was the protocol, had some severe severely or impactful um, experiences. Yeah, yeah. They and even some of them even said we would ask them. You know, we always try to set a, a dialogue with them beforehand. You know, just, you know, get to know them a little bit, just a minute or so, your name and, you know, how are you doing, that kind of thing. And have you ever heard of Reiki before? And 
I, I, I can't give you a number, but a good majority of them, yeah, I've heard of Reiki before. Oh. Actually, we used Reiki in a program when I was in San Antonio with the with the Army, or uh, when I was in you know Washington State, we used Reiki. So it's something that the DoD is using, or or maybe some other of these um, I guess resiliency programs that they have. So they they knew what Reiki was and they understood it, and they were like, hey, I'm okay with it. I you know please do. And some that didn't ever heard of Reiki, they've never heard of Reiki, they, they would, we'd be done with our 15-minute session. They were like, that's so relaxed. That's the most relaxed I've ever been. Some actually felt, you know, that they, they were almost out of body, that they, they didn't feel their feet or whatever. I mean, they, because they were that relaxed. And, and they were kind of surprised and, 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 and overjoyed. And we were excited. And it was a hit. People ask me, well, you know, where do you, where do you see Reiki and, and, and all that? And, you know, you know, Allison says, you know, we want to make it mainstream. And really, that to me was a vision. I mean, I, I had a vision that I'll, Reiki needs to be mainstream. And, and when I framework that, I say, well, you know, look at look at yoga. You know, 20 years ago, yoga was done by, you know, just a few select group of people. Now we're doing yoga with goats out in parks. So. Yes. I think we've I think we've maybe jumped the shark with yoga a bit, but you know, I, and I don't see Reiki going to that point. But it needs to be something that everybody just talks about and, and says, "Hey, you know what? I'm going to look at a Reiki session." Somebody doesn't go, oh, "What the heck is Reiki?" Oh, okay, cool. You know, that's you know, good deal, good for you. You know, that kind of thing. So it's just another tool in your tool belt to 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 help you through this you know wonderful life that we that we have. In episode 6, we checked in on a dear friend of mine, Wade T. Oberlin. He was a radio DJ at AFN Tokyo, Eagle 810, who went on to continue hosting radio shows in Everett, Washington, and now in Ohio, after separating from the Navy. Now, I love Wade, I appreciate his one-of-a-kind perspective, and the personality that he brings to any of our conversations. I, I had a resume that said, I've seen Damo Suzuki live, the lead singer of Can. I've also seen Cool in the Gang. I collect records all the time. I'm in the Navy. I've run social media. Let me just come in and do your do your stuff. And I ran into the manager at the time, uh, an owner, and he really liked me and was kind of floored at my approach because it had a real audacity, I guess, <laughs> which is maybe it's a veteran thing. I think it is because when you're a veteran, I think you might get out with, it's like, I've got all these skills, I've got all this know-how, and I've got power drive, I've got my my core values, honor, courage, commitment, you know, people know that. <laughs> and uh, you could just sort of go into that and, and see if it works. And, uh, and for me, it did. It worked for an entire, I think, year and a half I worked for Jive Time Records when I first got got to town, yeah. I always knew that I'd, I'd leave the military, but there was a part of me that, that felt it was important to continue and re-enlist for the extra two years to go to Japan and experience Japan. And it's some of the, the best times of my life were held there. Not just uh, as far as forming skills and career path, but as far as immersing myself in culture. Like I made many friends outside the gate, as Hisano would say. When I was there, I felt very, very close to to people and to music more than I had since I had joined. And uh, it felt very good. And I knew that I wanted to have that when I got out. It's a strange time. 
it was a strange time when I joined too. Bush was on his way out and uh, I didn't know what war would look like now in 2018, but it's been, you know, just about 20 years of, you know, wars that people really aren't resisting as much as they used to. Instead, I find that a lot of people are fighting for their own personal and individual rights and the rights of very divisive elements, be them like race or gender, things that are still important, but I feel like they've really eclipsed something that's that we should be addressing more, which is why we fight and why we go to war and whether you feel you'd like to support something like that or not. And I think those are questions you should address for yourself before you join the military. For me, I felt good supporting my military for a time. And maybe I was naive, but maybe I thought that war would end and we'd come to uh, something a bit more steady. I found out as I hosted episode 7 that I just love talking to authors. Anyone that writes a book, I think that that's a great way to offer your perspective, and I definitely enjoy talking about these subjects with uh, the people who wrote these books. So if you have a book in the veteran space, I want to read it, and we need to talk about it. Maury Castaneda wrote a 10 hut, 10 things veterans should know before they enter the civilian workforce, and I hear he may have something else in the works right now, so I hope to have him on again in the future. When I was at E45, I started getting my own C-pups, is what we would refer to them, right? So someone knew, and they would follow you around, you'd tell them, you'd teach them, and do that. But yeah, absolutely, as I became an officer, that's probably my favorite thing that, that uh, being a Mustang was all about, was talking to young people and, and, and helping them reach whatever goal it was, whether it was to, you know, do your four years and get out and, you know, go to college. Well, let's figure out how we're going to save for money and what you're going to do. If it was to make a career, if it was to get commissioned, if it was to make E78, let me help you. And, and I think that was the most valuable. And I still look back. I still get phone calls. I've been retired now for about a year and a half or two years, probably closer to two years. And uh, I still get phone calls. Man, you talk about warming the heart when, when I get someone that's, you know, like, hey, sir, how you doing? Like, first, don't call me, sir. I'm doing great. How are you? <laughs> right. I'm out now. So it's cool. My name's Maury. Uh, but let me, yeah. Well, well, how can I help you? And it's always nice to, you know, sit there and say, well, maybe you should talk to, you know, talk to your LPO, talk to your boss or, you know, or whatever. So yeah, totally mentoring, mentoring, mentor, mentor, mentor. And I started talking to these people about executive coaching and things like that. And as I started talking to them, I'm like, man, this is, this is what I do. This is where I am. So I enrolled in an executive development program, an executive, uh, coaching program and got my certification. And one of the things that the guy that, that talked about was that you need to you need to write you need to write to get your get your message out there and write about what you're good at. So I was like, I'm going to write about leadership. I'm going to write about leadership. I've been exposed to tons of leaders, and as I'm writing this book on leadership, I'm trying to figure out what my actual philosophy is because I realize that it's just a little bit from this CEO and a little bit from this chief and a little bit from that guy. What do I really stand for? You know, and so I'm in the shower one day. And I'm starting, you know, that's where I do most of my thinking. And I'm like, you know, my next book I'm going to write is going to be about the transition process because I was, you know, I was thinking about work and, you know, why, why am I, the, the people that work for me don't see things a certain way or why am I having trouble with this? And I, I address some of them in the book, 
He's like, I'm just going to write. Like, hey, hey, dude, if I, if I went back in the Navy, I'd be like, you wouldn't believe what's happening. I, I say this, and people are like, no, nah, I think we're going to do this. And then, <laughs> you know, I think it's better if we do it this way. Like, wait, well, all right, in charge? Well, you are, but you're not really. <laughs> you know, and we'll get it done this week. Well, I want it done today. Well, yeah. why do we need to get it done today? He's like, you know, and then you don't really have. So anyways, so I, so I just need to write about that. I just need to get that out and let, just let everybody know, like, warning, warning. You know, it's not, it's not as easy as you think. And so I came up with, you know, like 12 or 13 little topics and I started writing them down and all of a sudden I was like, this book's almost written. Yeah. I should write it. I should just get it down. My wife really encouraged me and you know, I have 12, 13 chapters and then I started condensing and getting smarter about it. And in about 60 days I had it. And the, the coach that I was using, the executive coach that was helping me through the process, he was, he, he helped me through, you know, the create space and the avenue, the avenues for Amazon and things like that. And it was very, very simple. And so I would challenge anybody, if you have any aspirations to write a book to hit me up what you say in the book is you realized you were trying to transfer into your civilian job right and it wasn't working out so what do you mean by that and what had to change to make it successful yeah that that was that was like a huge epiphany right you could probably tell from everything that i did i took some advice from the people that were in charge and then try to make it my own informant so when i was in the navy right everywhere i'd go i was like what, what where were the problems especially when i became an officer or a leader like, where, where are our deficiencies? What do we do well? Who's great? Who's struggling? And then let's figure out how we're going to increase production. We're going to increase, you know, what we're doing to make our team the best. I, I always, and again, coming from that that school of, uh, of sport, if you will, baseball or soccer, is like, hey, I just got put on this team and I'm going to make it better. But I'm going to make it better through helping these people get better. And one, one, one quote that I, I, I say repeatedly, and I used to try to do that was, was put people in a position to be successful, right? Find out where their strengths are. And in the civilian sector, I really had to call strength finder. But I, I just didn't know. Just, I thought I was a genius, but it's already out there. <laughs> um, so, if I, but seriously, put the people, if you're not good at that, get them off of there, put them in that area, and you have that flexibility. I don't know how many times, well, it was a few times where I would go and I would have a, you know, a struggling E5 who didn't like doing this, wasn't good at that. It's like, well, can you do that? Yeah. And all of a sudden, they start to flourish. They start to do things. So, and so when I got to my civilian job, I look and I was like, well, what are, what are we doing good? What are we doing bad? And like, okay, I got a grasp on it. Let's go ahead and fix those things. And there wasn't really a desire to like make that overnight change. Like, hey, the new guy's here. He wants to make that change. Like, well, that's a good idea. Maybe we'll start implementing some of that. It's like, well, I'm in charge. You know, I, <laughs> I kind of called the ball here. I kind of said, we want to do that. I, I, and so I'm thinking in my mind, okay, you're not a lieutenant, you're not a lieutenant, you're not a lieutenant. Don't go off and say we're not doing this. Do not, do not, do not go off. But hey, how about we really try and do that? How about if you work on it? Okay, I'll get to it. What are you doing now? You know, I mean, what, what's stopping you from doing that like today? Like we can actually make some real good progress if you like decide that you want to get on board with me and do this today. And so, you know, and I was very cognizant of not, you know, not stepping on feelings. And, and I, I address it in the book, too. It's like I knew that there's some perceptions about me. I knew that people were probably waiting for me to yell or give a direction or, you know, whatever else. Or, you know, he's going to go all military on me. And like, right, I think the subject, yeah, the top of the chapter is right. You're not a drill sergeant. So mm -hmm. I think everybody was waiting for me to go off and, you know, tell everybody to do things. So I, I, I knew that. I could feel it. I could sense it. And, you know, they were just waiting to tell me, or maybe, maybe I perceive that maybe I'm going off and maybe if they listen to this podcast, I'm like, it really wasn't like that. But, uh, I just felt like there was, it wasn't a setup, but like they were waiting for the military guy to come out. So I realized I was like, yeah, I know, I know you asked how was the transfer? I was like, 
I'm not going anywhere. They're, they're right to an extent. I'm here as long as I want to be here. I, I can leave tomorrow, which that kind of opened up. Like, I can quit. Holy cow, I can quit. If it sucks that bad, I can quit. Now, does it suck that bad? Right? And so I used to have those conversations. Does it suck that bad? No, it doesn't. Okay. So let, let's calm down. Let's figure out we're going to stay here longer than three and a half years. All right. So now if we, if we expand this thing to like a 10-year thing, can you, can you empathize with them a little bit? Yeah. Okay. So we need to go from there. So that's what I meant by transferring. You know, you, you try and make an impact in the job you're at. You get this thing. You want to leave a mark. But like, hey, I don't, I can, I can work here until I'm 70 if I really want to, I guess. Or until, they, you know, no one's going to ask me to leave. There's no retirement. There's no checkout. There's no transfer. There's no impending orders coming that says I'm going to leave. And my team isn't changing. So we got to figure this out. It, I, I find that, that the TAP class probably needs the same type of, and I could be wrong. I mean, this is just one person's opinion. And, you know, who am I? I'm just some dude. Um, but I've done enough research and I do a lot of, you know, talking with other, other individuals on LinkedIn. This is a very hot topic, you know, the TAP class. Um, I think it's a, it's a, it's a whole change. It's a whole change in structure. Um, if you were to ask me like, Hey, what can we do? We, we take anywhere from depending on the service, anywhere from six weeks to, to 12 weeks to integrate someone into the way we want them to be right so navy boot camps eight weeks i'm not certain what the what air force is but uh they're all between eight and 12 weeks to teach you this is how you this is how you wear your uniform this is how you do that and then on the way out, like hey we're gonna give you a week by someone that works at our family service center or or at the uh you know uh fleet and family readiness or whatever whatever acronym we want to give it and they're going to give you one week to figure it all out right and you know ready set go and we got these workshops and it just seems kind of disingenuous in, in, in a way that like, you know, you gave, you know, four years, five years, and we took two of those months, three of those months to figure it out, but we're only going to give you one week on the way out. Uh, I think the title of your, uh, of your uh, podcast is probably essentially what I would call it. It boots off, right? So you had boot camp, boots off. Well, I'm going for 30 days. You get orders to figure out how to do the, and, and I wouldn't, we do decompression from when guys come back to deployment. And I think it's probably right. some similar, it, it's a similar fashion where we have to just write a person off a young lady or a young man. It's like, all right, you're, you're out. All right. There's no, the point of no return. If you're going to boots off or whatever we want to call it, then, you know, you got orders to this place. You've got orders to, and, and maybe they're they're and maybe they're local. They're, they're not a, I know, I know boot camps only in certain areas, but maybe we have, you know, joint base type things where it's 30 days long, man. It's a, uh, we're going to, we're going to cover this. We're going to cover that. And, and the sailor or the airman, Soldier Marine is going to is actually going to get paid their last couple checks while they're in there integrating to get ready so that we could send them out. Because I think and this I don't know. I'd love some research if anybody's listening to do some research. I'd like to know how much how, how much we could reduce homelessness and, and the veteran problems by giving. I mean, we got guys with PTSD or don't know they have PTSD guys and ladies that are out there and they, they get one week to figure it out. I mean, they, they've got all kinds of issues. I mean, it, it takes you months to figure out the the. Uh, the uh the vet the va process and then and that's a slow moving target as it is and it's like well you'll figure it out when you get out there and and here this is how you tie your tie though and this is what your resume should look like and you go to linkedin and type your name in and set up a password mm -hmm. and good luck and it's like well yeah if you have nothing wrong with you and you're sharp and you're paying attention and things are going swell for you then that's probably okay but i i think that there's a lot of people that don't and i think that those that inability to actually get people to 
to, to know, know they, I, I say it four or five times and it's a phrase that I wish I didn't say. I need to come up with a different way to say it. So you don't know what you don't know, right? And so you're going to that tap class to try and figure out what it is you don't know you don't know. And unfortunately, what you really want is to make sure that you're taken care of medically, right? Your health is probably your most important thing. So you want to listen to what the VA has to say. They come in for half a day and you want to figure out how, if you're disabled, how to put in that claim and get it started as soon as possible. And so while you're working on that and you got your workbook, someone's in your ear about how to, how to get a job, but you really don't care about that because you're trying to figure out what benefits you're entitled to, how you're going to take care of your family. What, and then hopefully when you come back up for air, you know, someone's talking about how to, you know, how to use the, how to apply for USA jobs or how to do something else. So you're missing stuff because it's just, it shouldn't be called tap. It should be called drink from a fire hose. And, you know, hopefully you figure it out. It's not to say they don't put out good info though. You just need to do it two or three times. Revisiting episode eight was a very emotional uh, episode for me. And if it wasn't for the sake of time here, I would include the entire uncut conversation with Matt Rossi. Uh, Matt embarked on a hike through the entire Appalachian Trail to raise money under the charity Miles for Nolan. In December of 2018, Matt was killed in a car crash, and I'm grateful to have our conversation saved here and published to reflect on how good a person he was. And if you desire, I did write a post on how Matt had such an impact on my life. Uh, That post is on the Lara Media website under blog. Enjoy. Did you ever think that the next challenge was going to be the Appalachian Trail? I absolutely did not. This kind of was a uh, was a whim, you know. And when I when I started terminal leave in November, you know, I had kind of told myself prior to starting terminal leave that I was going to take a year off and do nothing, and um, and just kind of enjoy the freedom. And and I did um, a little bit of nothing. But when February came, when I officially retired in one February, about second or third week in, I went, I don't know that I can sit around and do absolutely nothing. And so I felt like I needed to do something with a with a sense of purpose, you know, considering that's all I'd done for the last 21 years. So, yeah, I contacted a mutual friend of ours and uh, asked if... Uh, his sister-in-law would be welcome to the idea of me hiking the Appalachian Trail, you know, on behalf of uh, her son. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, I still, I've, I've learned a lot about myself, you know, like 21 years in the military, um, you you go through a lot of adversity, you know, and, and, and I've, I've gone, or, uh, gone through quite a bit and experienced it and, and experienced uh, some of the you know, other airmen go through it, but, um, this is a different type, you know, this has been a real, a real challenge that I didn't expect, you know? And so, um, I didn't think that I was going to have to, to persevere every day. Like I had to, um, the first, you know, six weeks, you know, and there's some days, you know, um, where they're, they're pretty tough. Like yesterday was kind of a, kind of a tough day, you know? Um, and, um, so, you know, yeah, I've learned a, a lot about myself and, 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 and what I'm still able to kind of, to kind of go through and overcome, um, you know, other things I've learned, um, that, you know, aren't just about myself, you know, or just, you know, how many, how many people 
there are, you know, in the world that know about the Appalachian Trail, you know, that, that come to America, that get a visa and come to America just to hike the trail, you know, just to, to push themselves, you know, and, uh, and it really is awesome to see, um, you know, the amount of people that come out here and, uh, and, and try and push themselves, um, to, to complete it, you know, um, or even just do, you know, 20, um, you know, 20 days, 30 days, you know, doing only maybe five, 10 miles a day, you know, um, it's, it's really good to see, you know, that, that not all Americans are, are couch potatoes, you know, um, so, and, uh, I mean, I guess that <laughs> I've definitely learned that it's, uh, uh, backpacking can be expensive. Uh, long, long-term backpacking can get, uh, really expensive. I definitely wasn't expecting, um, to incur the amount of expenses I did, but you know, that's just part of it. It's part of the adventure. But is there anything else that you want to say? I'd, I'd like to get you out here to Arizona sometime so we can sit down and talk a bit more in depth. You don't have to hike out here. I definitely advise against it. You can take a plane or a car, you know? Yeah, I would, uh, I would, I definitely look forward to, uh, to coming out there and, and, uh, doing a, um, doing a more long form podcast. Um, uh, yeah, I think after this, my, uh, my hiking boots will, uh, will probably be hung up for just a little while. Um, until I can at least gain feeling back into my feet. I haven't felt my feet, uh, probably in a couple of weeks, like there's portions of them that are sore, but like my toes and balls, of my feet, they're, they're numb. They've been numb for about, I don't know, five weeks now or so. Um, anyway, that's just, uh, again, that's just part of the, the adventure. Um, but, uh, you know, thanks again for, for having me on and, uh, thanks for, uh, thanks for your support and, uh, you know, helping me get the word out. I appreciate it. This is something many, many people wouldn't, can't see themselves doing is hiking 2200 miles through the mountains but what is it that gets you through those days what keeps you pushing forward man yeah that's a that's a great question you know some days it's it's um it's me realizing that no matter how bad a day i'm having or how tough the you know because of how tough the terrain is um or how uh, how steep the elevation is uh, it, it pales into comparison to to young kids like Nolan, who you know has much worse than I do. You know that any pains that I'm having in my legs and in my back, you know, just don't compare. You know, and like I said, any elevation changes or, or terrain difficulties, again, they they pale in comparison to uh, to what him and others like. Uh, Nolan have to deal with on a day-to-day basis and that's that's what keeps me going and finally another conversation I was proud to record for Father's Day I invited my dad to be a guest as I spent my entire childhood as an Air Force brat and based all of my knowledge when I enlisted on experiences from his career yeah I had no idea no concept of what military life was like I didn't even know that until the first week of basic training, going through the lessons there, I didn't even know that I'd be wearing a uniform all the time. I thought oh. I thought a uniform was just for like special occasions. <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> it's like, what? yeah, what's this haircut thing going on? You can I wear this to... every day. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So yeah, it was, that's how uh, that's how 
blind I was about what the Air Force was like or oh. the military was like. But luckily, Did you know I they were going to yell at you. No, no, I didn't know that either. <laughs> that was that was quite a shock. Um, were they pushing it though, like they do today, pushing education? It didn't. It didn't seem like it. I mean, you had uh, you you did have the GI a form of the GI Bill, not like anything like it was later. You know, you did have that as far as you know helping out financially, and of course they paid the tuition and stuff. But as far as pushing off hours education, it, it didn't. It, it didn't seem like they did back then. This is nineteen eighty six, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nineteen eighty six. Uh, I joined in nineteen eighty five. So yeah, by the time I got to Tucson, it was nearly 80, uh, 86, and uh, there was not a big, didn't seem to be a big emphasis on it. They they came along a couple years after I had joined. I uh, got my first duty station and was in personnel. They came along and they put um, personal computers in our offices. Um, now, it, it, you have to remember, this was like 1987, 88. Um, not, they didn't put a personal computer on everybody's desk they we had one in our office <laughs> and that one in our office was you know one of maybe five in the whole in the whole personnel building yeah, um, they introduced this box and, yeah and all the airmen gathered around like cavemen yeah we're trying exactly. to figure out what this thing was exactly and you touched something and it powered on and freaked we saw you the, out we saw the uh the golf game come on and we're like, wow, yeah, that's great. <laughs> we can play golf. Um, we, but yeah, there was like not di any direction on what we were supposed to do with it or anything. So that a lot of times they, they, not many people jumped on them, but you know, I was one that, that kind of took to it. And I had my, like, for example, my job at the time was involved, uh, filling out a lot of, forms with canned statements, you know, repetitive forms and just with with um the same same basic statements uh again and again on each form. So, you know, I I eventually I I made a database of these canned statements and I could easily instead of typing these forms out on a typewriter, I could stick the form in the in the computer printer and choose choose which statements I needed to include on the form and it would just zip it out. Now today in, in our recent memory, that doesn't seem like a significant thing. Um, but you know, that wasn't, not everybody was doing that back then. You just with, came up with that idea. Yeah. Yeah. And then you probably submitted that and they gave you about 10 grand for that idea. No, they didn't, I didn't get anything. For, I didn't get anything. For we don't have any ideas some incentive programs here. The only you just thing did something for, to help yourself and, and a good exactly. idea that could, you know, make everything in the Air Force smoother. But well, it, it helped me make said, my hey, job. Good job. It made my job easier, you know. I could do a lot more <laughs> in a lot shorter time. That um, seems like it, a genius thing to do, though, that people would want to know about. Well, I mean, it wasn't like, it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was genius it was just a matter of using the tools that they provided uh in an advantageous way um to for my own job it's just thinking out of the box a little bit really but what it did do they did start sending me to courses formal courses so i could learn more about databases and and uh you know other other programs and stuff like that and it just it just kept growing 
So they, they did take notice that you were that I, benefiting from this device. Right, and, that had an interest, yeah. Yeah, okay. So then they started sending you to places, and your career took more of a, a form. You know, the military, you can't, can't under undervalue or underestimate the the benefits yeah the support uh, and the benefits of raising a family in the military of course there's some you know there's pros and cons on both on the military and a civilian life but i mean the job security and the the medical benefits and and everything that comes with that military package makes it really good environment for, for for raising a family and and bringing up a family it's hard to um pull yourself away from that security if you don't have you know a good a good plan for a good exit strategy i should say you know like like you did and, and you know I, I really admire what i really admire what you did when you made that move because um it was a very brave move and and but you know i i knew that you and devin had had the skills necessary that you would you would do well no matter what your choice was but yeah, it's 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 that's a tough decision to make. What? We had we had a you know comfortable life. We were living in interesting places, you know, and, and get I was I had good jobs, had interesting jobs. You know, it's not like I hated my job. I had I had a I had a, a huge stroke of luck with all my bosses. I mean, there were very few bosses that I had or supervisors that I had that I I really didn't like. I mean, only maybe a couple outside of a couple of them the, the all the rest of them were just great people yeah. to work with um you know I, I really didn't there was no i really didn't have a reason to get out you had hit 20 years active duty you could have retired at that point right but mm -hmm. instead you took two years to go to belgium for another assignment was that just a fork in the road where you could have retired, but they offered you this, so you took it? Yeah, it it basically was. I mean, of course, you know, we I I'd made that correlation about your graduation from high school and going into the military, especially when you had made that decision to go into the military and what you were going to do. I didn't um, make that decision completely by myself. Yeah, I, I understand. <laughs> but when that decision was when that decision was finally made. <laughs> you know it became apparent okay so the opportunity to retire became apparent but i really didn't feel like i was ready to retire at that point i didn't really have one way to put it. i didn't really have my i didn't feel like i had my ducks in a row mm. um i hadn't quite completed my degree yet um i wanted to i wanted to make sure i had my my bachelor's degree completed before i retired because i i, I wasn't really worried about having that ba that degree to be able to to get the best job you know in the, in the world or anything or to make a lot of money i wanted that that degree to give me the freedom to choose the type of job that i wanted instead of having having to take the job that came to me you know if you if you don't have uh, at that time it was looking like if you don't have a degree you have like it is now and it's even more apparent now if you don't have a degree your job choices are very very limited do you still see it that way now? Like, you think that that degree really helped you that much when you put all of the experience on the resume? Well, the the thing with the degree is, that as as I think other people have 
somebody may have already mentioned on your show, your podcast, you know, the, the, the degree is like a qualifier now. Most um, job positions that are advertised, it's not what that degree brings to the table for the employer. It's just a, it's just a qualifier. It helps weed people out, it seems. And then during that transition, was there anything that you learned that uh, could have made it go smoother? Or is there anything that you did that you think really helped it? Uh, well, other than having a plan and that degree. Well, yeah, uh, the, the um, transition program, as you've discussed in other podcasts, the transition program, as far as, you know, professionally speaking, the, the, that, the, the, the lessons learned in the transition program, as far as resume writing and stuff like that. I mean, now that in, now I'm, I'm in this current position, I read resumes um, and, and I, I interview people and what, what they taught, me in the transition program it seemed like it put put me uh, a, a way ahead of a lot of a lot of other people um i read resumes now and i'm like are you kidding me what you know you submitted this <laughs> it's just like i don't know what they were thinking uh they obviously had no no clue or no no training or preparation in for for that type of thing and you'll get glanced over easily if you don't have a good resume you might not necessarily know the answer to this, but have you noticed or even if you have veterans applying for the job, like do they stand out? Have you is that something that you've been able to notice? Yeah, uh they do because and, and I've always you know, I was told this years ago and I, I think it's still true that employers value um the qualities that you learn in in the, in the military, um, that everyone learns in all branches of the military, you know, job loyalty, to get the, to get the, to see the job done, uh, dedication to your job, and uh, you know, I'm not talking about to the level of being gung ho and and you know, all that stuff, but just just the common common quality of of completing and being responsible and accountable enough to get your job done and do it correctly. Um, I think is, 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 is sought after by employers and puts, puts prior military people, uh, head and shoulders above, uh, a good majority of the, the rest of the other applicants in most cases. That's all for the Boots Off podcast, the best of season one. Music for the podcast is by Army veteran Chase Landon. He did record that back in 2004 or so when we were both in high school, but I've always enjoyed the song that he produced there by himself, and I appreciate him, absolutely appreciate him allowing me to use that for the show. Uh, Thanks to all the guests who volunteer their time to speak with me and trust me to share our conversations with the audience. Which leads me to my last, but certainly not least, point. I am extremely thankful for you caring enough to listen to me and anyone who comes on this uh, Boots Off podcast. And I hope you get value out of it. If you do, please leave a five-star rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. If you don't get value, then you're probably not listening to me right now so i just ask that if you don't go leaving me any negative reviews that would be excellent of course feel free to find me on twitter linkedin and facebook and share the podcast tell everyone 
I'm always looking for new guests and new listeners. Of course, stay tuned for Season 2 of the Boots Off Podcast. We're back with new episodes next week.